following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I have some things to share with you today that I pray will pierce right into your heart. The American church, you, me, were in trouble. And there was a chapter written to introduce a book some time back. The author is Aaron Merritt Hills. This book was written, let me see if I can find it for you, 1896 was the first publishing of this book, 1896. He was a contemporary of Charles Finney. In fact, he sat under Finney at Oberlin College. He became a powerful pastor, filled with the Spirit of God, spirit, filled with the Spirit of Holiness going to share some thoughts that he had 
and then we're going to dive in deep. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come today to this broadcast of Pilgrim's Progress, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would come and move among us with such incredible power. Lord, there has to be a change. And I'm standing that that change has occurred in my heart. And I have said yes to you alone and to no one else. Lord, would you come now? Would you be very close to us? Would you lift us up? Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. This chapter is entitled, The Disease of the Church. We'll not spend the broadcast on this chapter, but I do want to give you a taste of it. The book is entitled, Holiness and Power, by Aaron Merritt Hills. When Jesus rose from the dead, the whole church of Christ could assemble in one chamber. At the time of his ascension, it numbered about 120. Of all the ages of history, it was the age of universal corruption. Outside of Judea, idolatry reigned supreme. Gods and goddesses representing Every phase of vice were openly worshipped in magnificent temples and at costly shrines. All power was in the hands of a magnificent and heartless imperialism. The masses were sunk in hopeless degradation, without means, without learning, without protection, and 60 million of them in the Roman Empire, were slaves. Aged parents were suffered to die of starvation. Children were exposed and murdered. Men fought each other as gladiators in the amphitheaters and died by the thousands for the amusement of the cruel populace. Every precept of the moral law was violated without conscience and without hindrance. The early disciples had no wealth, no social standing, no prestige, no government aid, no help from established institutions. They were in themselves a despised, and feeble group of people. Unknown, without influence, without skill, without education, without a New Testament, or even the Old Testament in the hands of the people. They didn't have the Old Testament in their hands. They were without a Christian literature or a single Christian house of worship pomp and power, custom and public sentiment were all against them. They were reproached, reviled, persecuted, subjected to exile and death. But these early Christians, they had the help of an indwelling, sanctifying Savior, and the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And with that equipment, they faced a hostile world and all the malignant powers of darkness, and they conquered. Within 70 years, according to the smallest estimate, there were half a million followers of Jesus. And some authorities affirm that there were at least a quarter of a million in the province of Babylon alone. In other words, the Holy Spirit power upon them 
they increased more than 4,000-fold in 75 years. In fact, every part of the known world knew who a Christian was. It is too much to say or believe that... Is it too much to say or believe that if the Protestant churches and ministry had a similar anointing of the Holy Spirit power today, we could take the world for Christ in ten years? We now have thrones and governments and protection and favorable public sentiment in large portions of the earth and hundreds of billions of dollars in the hands of Christians. We have established institutions and organizations and all needed facilities. The Bible is printed in some 400 languages This was back in 1800s. It's far beyond that now. And a Christian literature in abundance, like the leaves of the forest, we have everything desirable for doing Christian work. We have everything but the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Without that, how feeble comparatively when measured by the first century, are today's Christian work. If any thoughtful reader should be tempted to accuse of accusation, let him note the testimony of the great souls of those guardians of Zion. Fifty years ago, that spiritual commentator and theological professor at Oberlin, Professor Henry Cowles, commenting on the depressed standard of holiness. Now remember, this is back. That would be in the middle and early 1800s, and they're talking this way. The depressed standard of holiness and the consequent confusion and shame of the church, he wrote plainly, there is no remedy but for the church to come back to the very elements of piety, she must return to God and holy communion. The standard of piety must be raised. You know, just a side note, I was just in the news reading today Hillsong Church that so many of you love their music and you pay big dollars to buy it. And yet Hillsong Church has taken a position totally inclusive taking a position that God loves everybody unto salvation. In other words, universalism. So if you're gay, it's not a problem. Whatever your particular sin is, not a problem. Everybody, welcome home, everybody. Well, you know and I know that if that's true, That's what hell will be made up of. Heaven is only for people who are holy, sanctified, walking clean before God. No unclean thing can enter into the gates of that new Jerusalem. The Bible is very clear about that. He continues, The church must return to God and holy communion. The standard of piety must be raised. What can the church do for the conversion of the world, for her own existence even, without personal holiness? Much deep, pure, personal holiness. No wonder that a conviction of this this truth should have fastened upon discerning minds with painful strength. The standard of piety throughout the American church is extremely and deplorably low. It is low compared with that of the primitive church, compared with the provisions of the gospel, with the obligations of redeemed sinners, 
or with the requisite qualifications for the work to be done. The spirit of the world has deeply pervaded and exceedingly engrossed the heart of the church. Go through the land and estimate her unconsecrated wealth, measure the energy of worldliness and the apathy of love, of prayer. There is extensively a public sentiment which repels the subject of personal holiness. It is named with fear. It is not welcome in the American church. The responsibilities and privileges of Christians in this life must be clearly exhibited and mightily urged upon the heart and conscience of the church. But pastors won't do that today in in this modern age because they know if they do they will lose many of their members and how can they pay the mortgage on their church if they begin to confront sin and people get angry and leave so even the key leaders continue to walk in complete disobedience and lack of piety before a holy and righteous God How can this be? About 25 years ago, that would be about 1850, Dr. Albert Barnes, the commentator of of Blessed Memory, delivered a discourse in New York City in which he made the following statement concerning the condition of the churches. Not one in ten of the membership of our church, Presbyterian, are doing anything effective for the sanctification of believers or of the salvation of sinners. This utterance was very extensively reported and never writes one of wide reading was its strict correctness questioned. Well, today I would say not one in a hundred. No, I would say not one in a thousand in America is doing anything for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I confronted a group of Christian men, Christian leaders, and I said to them, this was a whole group of maybe 20 men, I said, have any of you this year won a person to Jesus? Would you raise your hand if you have? Not one hand went up. I said, have any of you won anyone to Jesus in the last two years? These are leaders. These are people who are deciding what the church will do, what the program will be, who the pastor will be. I said, have any of you in the last two years won one person to Jesus? No. Have any of you in the last five years won anyone to Jesus? And angrily they said no. And then they began to unbraid me, saying, that's not our skill. That's not our ability. Interesting, Jesus did not ask if it was our ability. He said, come and I will make you fishers of men. I dare say many of you listening to this broadcast have not won one person to Jesus in the last five years. Why? Because you are worldly and cold of heart. And you don't go in the prayer closet and weep over the lost. You don't go in the prayer closet and and plead for even one sinner. You don't confront sin. Holiness is not on your agenda. That has to change. The only way that can change 
is by a deep searching of heart. An honest searching after Jesus. An honest searching after Jesus. Reverend A.T. Pearson said before a Christian conference in Detroit, Michigan, God meant to impress men by the contrast of the unworldliness of his people, but on the whole, the witness of a separate and sanctified life is gone. This was back in the 1800s. What do you think it is today? And the witness of the tongue of fire is gone with it. The worldliness of the church is a fact to which we cannot with impunity shut our eyes. Dr. Rice of Virginia said, The work of foreign missions will not advance to any great degree till there is a higher type of piety at home. that it would not consist with the plan of God to diffuse over the world such a low type of piety as prevails among us. In fact, such a sort of piety has but little disposition to diffuse itself. It requires all its vital energy to maintain its present position, and there's nothing left over for others. the great Dwight L. Moody. Nine-tenths, at least, of the church members never think of speaking for Christ. If they see a man, perhaps a near relative, just going right down to ruin, going rapidly, they never think of speaking to him about his sinful course and of seeking to win him to Christ. Now certainly there must be something wrong, and yet when you talk with them, you find they have faith, and you cannot say they are not children of God, but they have not the power, they have not the liberty, they have not the love that real disciples of Christ will have. A great many people are thinking that we need new measures, that we need new churches, that we need new programs. All the new things. That is not what the church of God needs today. It is the old power that the apostles had. That is what we want. And if we have not then in our churches, there will be be no new life. Oh, there will be new ministries, but not ministries endued with power, filled with the Spirit. He goes on, wow, for another five pages, quoting eminent men and women of God, talking about the very sad condition of the church in America, in the mid and late 1800s. If it was true then, and it was, what of today? Today there is basically no difference between the pagan man and the so-called Christian man, except he's improved his life perhaps a little. He has some strategies to win, He has painted up the outside, but inside still loves the the NASCAR, still loves the the wickedness of the professional sports, still loves the cigar and the beer, still loves the wicked life. But he says he's a Christian, and he goes to church, and he might put a little money in the offering plate. I hope you hear me today. There's got to be a total 
and distinct change. If you're going to go to heaven, you're going to have to be holy. Hebrews said, Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. What is holiness? Holiness is being set apart by God, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, unto a life that is separate from the world, that is unlike the world. A total change. A total change. And that total change only comes out of what Paul said. I'll read it for you again today. He said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I still am. That change comes, Jesus said, take up the cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And he was going to Golgotha. I want to talk some about this issue again today in depth. I have about 25 minutes. I'm going to go very quickly. I'm going to speak very directly. I want to read for you Psalm 23. If you just joined, you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. Psalm 23. The Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me and your rod and your staff that comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, goodness and love, will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, this passage has reference to many things in the life of a believer. But he outlines the path that we will be taken on as we come to Jesus Christ. It's first the affirmation, the Lord is my shepherd. In other words, I make a decision. I'm not going to be my own shepherd anymore. I am going to allow Jesus to lead me where he wants to lead me and that he will cause me to lie down in green pastures. In other words, I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm going to begin to find a wonderful life in him. I'm going to be excited about knowing this man this Son of Man, this God, Jesus. It's called the first love. He's going to lead me beside quiet waters. I'm going to begin to experience a deep peace in my heart. I'm going to find that he begins to restore my soul. Things that have been stolen from me, he begins to bring peace in my heart about but then he's going to begin to do something. And this is where the American church has turned aside and has not allowed Jesus to do. He guides me in paths of righteousness. 
for his name's sake. In other words, we're going to come to a point in that early life with Jesus where either we're going to be shaken out, as Jesus in his parable said, the seed sown in that shallow ground did not gain roots. And so when the persecution came or the hardness came, they died out. They did not produce anything for Jesus or for the kingdom. Well, in today's church, we're able to continue a long time with no hardship. And so people remain in the church half converted. They have a few blessings, but they don't have any roots. They blow away quickly. And as he guides me into those paths of holiness, righteousness, the word righteousness just means innocence. Holiness just means innocent, set apart for God. I'm innocent. My sins are washed away. I'm made clean before God, and now I am given unto him. He says, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then I want you to see this. The very next thing, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Every Christian is going to go to the valley of the shadow of death. And it's in that place where you finally make the decision about what's going to happen in your life. It's where you finally come to a place where you side with the Holy Spirit against your own wolf nature that still exists. You're not going to call people liars or cheaters. You're not going to judge with hostility. You're going to begin to go through the valley of the shadow of death where it looks like you could die. And you feel like you're going to die. Believe me. For life seems excruciatingly painful. And the question is, are you going to give way to your wolf nature? Are you going to bite and fight for your own rights? Or are you going to humbly serve and wait on God to deliver you? He says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, what's the rod and the staff? The rod is what he beats you with to correct you. Look carefully at Hebrews, the 12th chapter. He will scourge his people. He will discipline his people. And then the staff. What's the staff? There's a crook on the staff where he reaches down and pulls us out of places that we cannot deliver ourselves from. We've gotten ourselves in such a mess. How many times I've, through my own foolishness, through my own actions, caused other people such anguish and pain, and for which I've been severely punished. And then in his kindness, he reverses that rod and with the staff pulls me out of that mess and sets my feet on solid ground. Not until I emerge from that does he go the next step and say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This is where you really have to make a a decision, or I should say act on the decision that you made in the valley of the shadow of death. King Saul never made that decision, and so at the end of his life, where do we find him? With his feet under a witch's table, feasting on her delicacies, 
and then committing suicide. This is the great King Saul, God's man for the hour. But David, David knows whose table that he's to put his feet under. He's going to put his feet under the table of the Lord God of heaven. He's going to feast on the things of God, not on the things of the devil. Oh, some of you today, I'm so frightened for you because you're not sitting at the table of the Lord. You're sitting at the devil's table in the middle of the church. And you're feasting on the concerts and the entertainment and the jokes and the parties and the social life of the church. Or on that of the world, it's the same deal. Whether you go to the clubs or you go to the church, what's the difference if it's all a a shallow place of laughter and no piety and no Holy Spirit presence? What's the difference? One has a, a love of the things of the club. Another has the love of things in a worldly church where the the worldly music from Hillsong and other places can fill your hearts and minds with sentimental slop. What's the difference? One man has a hobby of the church. Another man has the hobby of a club. Both ungodly places if it's not filled with piety and the power of the Spirit, if it's not honest, if it doesn't deal with sin, if it doesn't call you to righteousness. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We're not called and anointed as priests of God until we've been through this progression found in the 23rd Psalm. The affirmation, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's an affirmation that can only come from a man or woman who has been tried and found innocent. A man or woman who is finally sold out to Jesus Christ. A man or woman who, who knows where to put their feet, under which table to put their feet. Some of you think you have one foot under the table of the Lord and one foot at the table of the devil, but you've been deceived because the foot you have in the church is a worldly church that accommodates the devil's table. We're going to have to go on a whole new tack if we're going to make it to heaven. The worldly church is going to have to come to Jesus. The worldly church is going to have to make this fundamental decision whether they want to be loved and popular and successful, or if they want to follow Jesus and be filled with his Spirit. I'm not pretending that this is easy to do. I'm not pretending that it's simple. This passage, I have been crucified with Christ. That stands right at the get-go. Have you been crucified with Christ? Have you been willing to let go of this world and its allure? Now, what does it mean to die to self? We find here, I've been crucified with Christ, and I still am. On the other hand, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And that life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, the self does not die. When we as pastors have said we must die to self, what do we mean? 
Well, what we mean is, if a man leaves the government office and goes to work in the car factory, he has totally changed his career, he's totally changed his position, everything is new. Now he's working an assembly line, putting a car together, instead of working in a government office, shuffling papers, and nothing against working in an office and shuffling papers. I know some of you work so very hard and are so utterly faithful unto Jesus in those government offices. I know I talk to you. Please, I'm not talking about the merits of either place. I'm talking about there is a total change, a total shift, and you have started in a whole new place. But yourself, you are still yourself. The difference is, yourself has been replaced by Jesus in you. Because you've renounced the old ways. And now Christ lives in you. This coming of Christ means an utter death of everything you've done in the past. You come to Christ. And before you knew Christ, you were chewing tobacco. Well, after you come to Christ, he's not going to chew tobacco, I can guarantee you. Before you knew Christ, You love the alcohol. Well, I can tell you now, Jesus is not going to get drunk. Before you knew Christ, I mean, before you really knew him, you can be in the church and not know Jesus. Before you knew Jesus, you loved the worldly sports. You loved watching the pornography. You loved the lust in your heart for women. But Jesus is not going to do that in your heart. The lust is gone. A man or woman who is born in the Spirit will not lust after one of the opposite sex. Now, instead of looking at that woman as an object You see them as a person needing the Savior Jesus. Instead of looking at them to consume them, you now want to save them. This is a change that only Jesus can make in your heart. But you have to come to a place where you say, Okay, I am crucified with Jesus. Now I'm waiting on the Lord to bring the fullness of that into my life so that I can know it's true. And you know a total change has to come in your life. A total shift has to come. But you can't make that shift. If you could, you would not need Jesus. But you can't make that shift happen. But there is a going through the valley, the shadow of death. And later we're going to deal once more with Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. He says that before you go through the valley of the shadow of death, You have to go through the valley of humiliation. In other words, you will be unwilling to go through the valley of the shadow of death where you let it all go until you have humbled your heart before God. Some of you today, as you listen, need to begin to pray, O God, humble my heart humble my heart. I'm arrogant. I'm proud. I'm defensive. I'm argumentative. I don't want to be a servant. I want to be served. 
I want what's mine. I want what I deserve. I want my rights. I'm entitled. All of that's a sign that a person has never gone through the valley of humiliation. I'm going to share with you probably on tomorrow's broadcast the valley of humiliation. And in depth, we'll talk about the valley of the shadow of death. What will it take in your life for you to stop being just religious and really begin to cry out to God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What will it take for you to finally say, look, I'm not getting the job done. I find confusion comes in my mind. I find that attacks from the enemy with all kinds of vile thoughts come into my heart. What will it take for you to recognize the way you're treating other people in your self-righteousness? Thinking you're God's gift. What will it take for you to begin to humble your heart before God and before men? There is something so very attractive in a person who's humble before God and men. There's something so very attractive in someone who has nothing to prove but only to give, only to love, only to offer kindness and mercy. There's something so winsome. Remember my mother had to go to the nursing home She was an invalid. She could not walk. We couldn't care for her. She went to the nursing home, and after she'd been there for some time, I visited her there regularly and would bring her special meals that I knew she loved. I noticed that she was becoming more and more grouchy, more and more upset with the staff, angry about the way she was being treated. And I finally said, Mother, could I say something to you that that may hurt, but it's necessary? Well, what do you want to say, Ray? Mother, as we grow older, we either get better or we get bitter. Right now, you're getting bitter. And I want you to go to heaven. So, Mother, dear, would you pray about this? Tears in her eyes. She said, yes, I'll pray about it. The next week when I went to visit Mother, there was a huge difference in her. We didn't talk about it. I just observed it. There was a sweetness in her countenance. There was a sweetness in her smile. And she said to me, Ray, the strangest thing happened this week. I said, what was that, Mother? She said, the the nursing attendants have changed the way they treat me. I don't understand why. (laughs) Oh, I did. She'd changed the way she was treating them. And so when they walked in her room, she said good morning brightly to them. How was your rest last night? How's your day going? What about your children? Are you married? She became very involved in their lives, and when Mother finally died, most of the nursing staff came to her funeral, and they could not say enough kind words about her, how she had been so helpful to them, how she had brought them such joy and love. 
What will it take in your life for that change to take place? Where instead of being surly, self-centered, you begin to express love and appreciation and kindness and mercy. That's what I want in my life. I want kindness and love, piety, presence of the Holy Spirit to flow through this mic to you. Because I'm concerned for you. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be filled with his presence. Well, we're out of time for this broadcast today. I'd love to hear from you. Have these broadcasts been helpful to you? I'm very grateful for each of you who has gone on the internet at nationalprayerchapel.com and sent contributions to help us continue this broadcast. It's a faith broadcast. Thank you. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, that's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Now, if you'd like to come and be a part of what we're doing at the National Prayer Chapel, we're a small home fellowship. You're welcome to come. It's very straight, very honest, very kind, very loving, but accountable. We're all making progress toward the kingdom of God, waiting on the Holy Spirit. You're welcome to come. I'm going to give you a phone number. If you'd like to come, call. If I don't answer, would you just leave a message and say, please, I need directions? It's from 10 o'clock Sunday morning until noon. Start right on the button and end right on the button. You're welcome to come. The phone number is 703-489-1785. Some of you have been thinking and praying about coming. Why don't you come? 703 489 1785. That's all the time we have today. I'm planning on being with you live tomorrow. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I pray God's blessing and his mercy for you that you will turn the corner if you need to and come to Jesus. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Joy with great joy. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory.